welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Saddlewick. Today, my guest joins me from South Florida, an epicenter of the coronavirus spread in the country. Crystal Wagger is the mayor of Miami Shores Village, a small city sandwiched between three of Florida's largest cities of Miami, Miami Beach, and Fort Lauderdale. In March of 2019, Mayor Wagger was running for a seat on the village council. But when the votes were tallied, she accomplished what no black woman had ever done before in the 87-year existence of the city. She secured more votes than any other candidate, catapulting her to victory and as the elected mayor of Miami Shores. Prior to her political success, she served as an accredited spousal diplomat with her husband, who was the U.S. ambassador to Singapore during the Obama administration. In addition, the mayor is the winner of the Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Young Leader Award and South Florida Women Extraordinaire Award. She's an alumni of Temple University, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree and earned her JD at the William Mitchell College of Law. Mayor Wagger, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Hi, Bob. Thank you. First of all, I have to say what a pleasure it is to join you on your podcast. You are a, I consider you a dear friend, so it's an honor to be here to chat with you today. Well, thank you. I, I really, I really appreciate that. Yes, it, we have known each other for a while, and I am honored to have you. Unfortunately, never got to congratulate you in person on your political victory, which was something those of us in the political arena are not accustomed to, you know, but now we're all hunkered down, so to speak. You know, I, I know time is limited with you today, and I want to jump just right into this because you are in okay. South Florida and you are really in the big fire pit of the coronavirus. And mm -hmm. before we really get off on that pandemic discussion, which we're going to do, you know, many people think that they want to run for public office. And there are so many considerations that you really have to address before making that type of commitment. And my guess is rarely does one ever have to consider how will I handle the impact of a global pandemic on my community? Right. It's barely been a year since you were elected mayor, and you're now very much dealing with that very thing, what one would consider the unimaginable, right? So let's yes. start with what compelled you to run for public office, and then we'll get into this, this pressure of the coronavirus. Okay, great. Um, it's a great question. I have to say it, it, it's been a a long conversation I was having with myself over the years as to how I could make an impact. You know, I've been in politics, in the realm of politics for most of my career, but behind the scenes. In this case, in my village, um, about 12,000 people, there were four seats open. And I, I reflected back on a conversation that I was humble enough and, and grateful enough to have with then President Obama, who said, you know, politics is local. And if there's an opportunity for you to make a difference at where you live, you should, you know, take, take that opportunity, be a leader, stand out. And so I kind of thought through that conversation and um, I realized that our community, uh, the community of Miami Shores had changed over the years. And when I looked up at our government, it just did not reflect uh, the residents here. Everybody was not represented. 
So I thought, uh, here's my chance, right? I'll take a shot here. And I, and I wanted to see other people participate in the process. So if I can do it, you can do it too. Um, was not sure how the outcome would turn out, but I tried to get out and knock on every door and meet with everyone in my community. I didn't realize how many friends I had here, but also it gave me more of inspiration because I got to see how diverse this community had become. And so it got me so much more excited. And it's tough. I have to pause here and just say, as a woman, I would love to keep seeing more women enter politics. Uh, We have more things to juggle than most. Uh, If you're a mother, you have to tend to your children. If you're married, you have to tend to your marriage. But And if you're working, you have to work. So there's a lot of balls to juggle. And and usually with women, you got to ask us more than once to get in the race because we're hesitant because we do have so much going on. But we lead differently. So as a woman, I... Any woman that puts her name on a ballot, anybody that puts their name on a ballot, but particularly women, I'm just so proud of. I'm, I, you know, I'm humbled by the votes. I'm humbled by my community. And here we are. I got, uh, I think, I think the most amount of votes in village history. I was reading it was a record turnout. Yeah. The election, record. which is yeah. in a non presidential cycle. Uh, That's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic. We're seeing more and more of that. We just saw a record turnout for a primary runoff here in Texas, uh, which is where I'm living now. And I found that extraordinarily interesting because usually, you know, you're lucky if you can get 100 people to vote in a primary, let alone a primary runoff, right? You brought up so many topics that are on my list here of things I want to discuss with you. And we're going to get to all of those. But before we do, I'm curious how the global pandemic has caused stress on your community's tax base. I was listening to an interview yesterday with the mayor of Arlington, Texas, who, along with 100 other mayors, sent a letter, a disaster declaration letter to the Trump administration. And that letter was sent based on the fact that they are having a major budget shortfall due to the stress that coronavirus has put on the tax base for his city, right? Are you experiencing that in Miami Shores? And if so, what what kind of plan do you have moving forward? Right. And so we just completed our, our budget workshop not less than two weeks ago and where we had to identify some of the shortfalls. I mean, you know, there are a lot of amenities, for example, around Miami Shores that are not open, our, our water park for our children, which draws an in income for us, our, our community pool is, has not been able to operate fully, our camps, our summer camps at our community center have not been able to operate fully, not to mention the services that we still have to provide to our community, to our residents, the recycling, trash services. These folks are out here working. We had to provide them with proper PPE. The folks working in village halls who are who at one point were having constant contact with the community, providing them PPE. Not to mention our um, the men and women of our police force, making sure they were safe, putting in new protocols for their safety. And, and we have a relatively small police force, so we didn't want to expend our resources. We had to be very careful about that. All these things add up. Uh, and in our case, the state of Florida was recently given CARES Act money from the federal government. That CARES Act money was divvied up amongst the larger ca- all the counties here in the state of Florida. Miami-Dade County, which is where we sit, 
uh, was given $474 million of CARES Act money. So right now the conversation is, we have a county mayor that's sort of overseeing that process. And within the county, we have 34, excuse me, municipalities, and I'm one of 34. Uh, so right now, the, the discussion is how to divvy up that money, right? That money was meant to be divvied up among the municipalities for the losses that have been incurred due to, due to this pandemic. So that's sort of our current debate and discussion right now. How do we get the money? Is it going to be based on population? Is it going to be based on loss? My uh, understanding of it is it's supposed to be based on population, but there's some argument and there's some debate going on back and forth between the municipalities and our county government with regard to that money. So in the meantime, we have the good fortune of having great folks over in Miami Shores Village administration that were very conservative with the money that we had on hand. And we have a decent, you know, reserve, but as this pandemic goes on, as you might imagine, you know, that, 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 that reserve could, could be drained quite quickly. So we're just, it's a fluid situation, Bob, and we're hopeful that we'll get our fair share of our CARES Act money. But in the meantime, we're being cautious with how we spend our taxpayers' money just in case, you know, we have coverages that we need to cover on our own. It's interesting, Mayor, you mentioned, you know, you're a community of around 12,000 people, and yet you're positioned between some of the largest urban centers of the state of Florida, uh, which yeah. clearly impacts how you have to make decisions that those <laughs> communities have on your community itself, how how these bigger, larger urban centers impact your village, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Elaborate a little more on some of the coordinated efforts that you're involved in with those other 34 municipalities. Well, and and just to be clear, yeah, we're surrounded by the city of Miami. We're surrounded by the city of North Miami. We've got Miami Gardens to the north. These are large municipalities, and there are several smaller ones like myself here. We're on Zoom calls, Bob. We are on Zoom calls with the mayors of each of these cities at least four times a week, trying to coordinate. Because the reality is, Bob, is that if I have a resident here living in Miami Shores who works in the city of Miami, and the rules are different. Once you cross into Miami, how do you control that? What do you do? So what we've been doing is trying to make our messages consistent uh, across the municipalities, uh, specifically as it relates to uh, openings of business, for example. Right now, we can do takeout and you're able to sit outside for restaurants. Right now, we don't have a mandatory mask order in place, but we are strongly urging our communities to wear the mask because it's obviously preventative. So it's just, it's those Zoom calls four times a week, talking to uh, my colleagues and and trying to create sort of a balance between the municipalities. We are also taking some guidance from the county, uh, Miami-Dade County Mayor. Um, so it's just it's like a collective effort and it's you're putting all these pieces together. And again, it's so fluid, you know, it changes every day. And we're just trying to get it right. You know, it's interesting. I was listening again to a a political conversation surrounding the mayors of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, there just doesn't seem to be as a seamless communication process between these municipalities here. We have some very, very politicized arguments taking place. 
Is, right. is any of that happening? Do you have any of that standout type uh, objection within the Miami-Dade community? So that's a, that's a great question. I, I think at this point, um, our situation here in South Florida is so critical. Um, we, we don't have the luxury of having uh, dissent amongst us. So many of us, most of my colleagues, and I, I think all, we're all members of the Miami-Dade County League of Cities, and that's who coordinates our, helps us coordinate our efforts, and we coordinate our efforts through that organization on our calls, uh, but, but not a lot of dissent because our, you know, we're in code red here, and, and we really don't have a lot of time to argue about what's right and what's wrong because we need to be following the science and the numbers aren't lying to us. And um, I haven't seen a lot of that dissent here and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for my colleagues for recognizing the challenges that we face and vowing to work together to get through that challenge. I'm I'm pretty proud of of my colleagues for that. You know, that's really fantastic to hear. We hear a lot in the media uh, and a lot of concern that's raised by local leadership that there has not been a national protocol. There has not been state level protocols. And Mm -hmm. this is really making our municipal leaders' jobs that much harder. Right. Not to put you in a contrary position, if you will, with your national and state colleagues in Tallahassee. How has South Florida turned its position collectively without that type of leadership from Mm. Tallahassee and Washington, D.C.? Another great question. What I would say is the governor does have an executive order in place that we do have to follow to it to an extent, and we can make our rules stricter as per the executive order. So, so you guys can make your rules stricter than what the state guidelines are. Correct. Because Correct. I do know here in Texas, we have ran into an issue where the governor issued a statewide mandate, and we yeah. actually had local municipalities rebuke that mandate. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting, but I, go ahead. It's, it's it's fascinating, quite frankly. We haven't rebuked uh, the governor's executive order. We have implemented a county executive order, which then extended powers to each mayor of each municipality here. Executive order powers as well. We've sort of, based on our own population and based on the behaviors of our constituents here in South Florida, we've sort of tailored our response to the county mayor's executive order. And then as it trickles down to the municipalities, kind of tailored to their, our own individual needs. Uh, but having, you know, having said that, the governor's executive order does cover things like bars and gyms and, and, and restaurants. And, and folks are eager to get back to work. And so while we don't have a stay-in-place order in place right now and our gyms are open and our restaurants are available for takeout and sit-down. I don't know if that's the right decision, but people want to try to make that work. In other words, business owners want to try to make that work. And it's been very challenging to find the balance between safety and continued economic success in these times of a pandemic. So We've sort of walked the line. We've been very cautious. And, you know, where we can follow the governor's orders and it makes sense, then okay. 
we can opt into some things and some things we just don't have control over. We don't have control over the openings or closings of certain businesses. And so we just have to, again, narrowly tailor it to our own municipal situations. The data speaks for itself a lot of times, right? And Mm -hmm. you have in Miami-Dade and specifically around your city, you Mm -hmm. have 56 hospitals that are within a few miles of with of Miami Shores. In addition, yeah. um, just a few miles down the road, you have one of the largest medical centers in the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we and, and that's getting a lot of national attention. Uh, Jackson Memorial is getting a lot of national attention. Yes. They're at their limits. Their ICU beds are full. How is that impacting your local community hospitals within your own city? And what kind of protocols are you taking to, to ensure that the health care of the citizens of Miami Shore can still have access without their hospitals being overrun? Right. So, you know, we get briefed on Jackson's numbers at least twice a week um, because it certainly can be a mirror or reflection on what's going to happen countywide in our hospitals. Miami Shores does not have its own hospital. We do use the services of North Shore Hospital about 10 miles north of us, which and we're so grateful for their partnership. And their hospital has turned into a COVID hospital, right? And it's, it's I mean, we're just at a point where our, we've got ICU beds. We need to, you know, make sure that aren't full so we can service people. We've got respirators that we need to make sure there's some space available. But I think what I would say is the upside is that because we're getting information on how to treat this disease, we're seeing people be able to leave the hospital, right? After a prolonged stay, we're seeing more people being able to leave. And that's the upside. And I think that's across the board down here because we're learning lessons from the New Yorks of the world and, and treatment from all around the world. And we're learning new ways to treat it. And so the outcomes are slowly getting different and a lot more hopeful than they were maybe say back in April when we, sure. we didn't know how to treat. So, you know, we're taking all this information, we're applying it as best we can. And I know Jackson is doing such a wonderful job leading us. Um, and, and we're just applying the methods and as, you know, as we learn them to be, and, and we're seeing some, some different results, which are promising. I'd say they're promising. We're not out of the woods by any means, but we are seeing some promising numbers. So in addition to being surrounded by these large urban communities, your economic viability is tied, obviously, to those big urban communities as well on multiple levels. Where has its lack of tourism and is there still a large majority of the service industry and the service sector that is closed? Well, Bob, um, that question is a bit complicated because we we certainly have, you know, our beaches, right? South Beach, Mid Beach, Beach, uh, Surfside, Hollywood, Golden Beach. We we have these beaches and and a lot of the hotels and the, and the restaurants there depend on people coming down and visiting our beaches. So I would, I, the effect on them is tremendous. You know, hotels are working at half capacity, but people are still coming. The beach has worked very hard and the beach, I mean, all the beaches I just mentioned, but they have worked very hard to implement 
plans that work for them uh, within reason that are also have the best interest of its residents at hand. Then you have the city of Miami where we've got Wynwood and, and all kinds of sites where people are visiting less so. It's affected our village because we are sort of a pass-through. I call us an urban oasis because we are urban, but we're a pass-through from sort of downtown Miami to, to north heading towards Broward. And we have these wonderful restaurants, Bob, that just opened up prior to COVID. And we were counting on people stopping in, right? Sure. And we haven't seen that same traffic. So where we once had a burgeoning business district on the precipice of great things. We had, I think, like three new restaurants come in several months before COVID, and we're doing really well. Um, and we've seen a decline in, in, mm-hmm. in people stopping in. So that's, you know, and our business service, service and business industry here in the shores is taking a hit because people, you know, aren't out and about as they normally are. So we are somewhat insulated from beaches and things like that because people who come are going to stay on the beach. They're not going to come here. But the folks who would normally visit the city of Miami, yeah, and and come and visit us, um, we're seeing a we've seen a huge decline. And so the struggle right now is to try to figure out how to help those businesses survive. You know, it's interesting. Florida, I believe, is either the lowest or the second lowest state in the country in relation to unemployment insurance protection, the amount of the amount of money people receive mm-hmm. on unemployment. And there is this national argument taking place as you and I are speaking today mm-hmm. about the extension of federal unemployment protection in conjunction with the state protection that, that they receive. With the service sector being extraordinarily hit hard. And even though, and and you being right in the middle of that, even Mm -hmm. though these folks may not be out of work, they might only be working 10 or 15, 20 hours a week, you know, at the most. So their incomes are highly, highly impacted. What would you like to see if you had the ability to influence that decision on unemployment benefits? And what do you think is fair for the service industry sector? Well, what I would like to see is I would like to see the extension, you know, in these times, we have to lead boldly. And being bold means to take some risks uh, on behalf of our nation. So I would love to see an extension of that. I would love to see our state get our unemployment system together. Our state has not done the best job in servicing those who are unemployed, meaning getting their applications filed uh, in a timely fashion, responding in a timely fashion, addressing people's fears about not having income coming in on a regular basis. As far as the the service industry, I just, ah, listen, as it relates to South Florida, the service industry is huge, right? We we depend on it, it's huge. Um, I would love to see our state government take the reins here and make special accommodations or at least attempt to make special accommodations for those in the service industry because they're taking a huge hit. We need to show them we appreciate them and thank them by going out on a limb and helping them survive as well during these times while our tourism is down and while people aren't going out to eat and while people you know, aren't getting their normal services as we would down here in South Florida. I would have loved to see the state to take initiative 
on that. And I've seen nothing to date. I could be wrong. I, I just would like to see more action there because it's taken quite a toll on that industry here. And, and, and it's going to be a while before we're able to recover that income for those folks who are out there working in the service industry. Or in some cases, not working, right? And not yeah. most cases not working, right. unfortunately. Right. You know, most cases. You had mentioned early in our conversation about women in leadership. And this was something that I really wanted to talk to you about. I had it in my notes to make sure that we addressed to this today. You, you are the first and the only black woman ever to serve as the mayor of Miami Shores. We are seeing a large, diverse group of women prepare campaigns and present themselves for public office. Mm-hmm. You, you, just, you mentioned how women lead differently, and I would have to 100% agree with you on that. Let's talk mm-hmm. about why it is important for women to be in positions of leadership and what you feel the ultimate outcome of that collective would be by electing more women. So, I mean, listen, women, we, we're wired differently, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think you'll get an argument on that one. <laughs> <laughs> we are wired differently. We lead with, I would dare to say, a fair amount of compassion and empathy and understanding just by virtue of the fact that naturally many of us are, are nurturing people, caregivers. We tend to want to think through the issues and on all sides, hear all sides, and not be stuck on one outcome. You know, our, our minds can be changed through intelligent dialogue. Likewise, we can, you know, we tend to be able to work across the aisle a little differently, trying to find a common ground in the best interest of our communities and our constituents. I just think our approach is different. And I think our approach in leadership can and does, and it's been shown, it makes a difference. And I always tell people, particularly women who are running, like, we should be supportive of each other. So I do try to uplift and encourage and be cheerleaders for women who dare to put their names on a ballot. Because I think long-term, it's inevitable that you would see a difference in policy making, in debate analysis, if women were at the helm. I, I just, I, I believe that. You see all these women mayors across the country, uh, from Keisha Lance Bottoms to Muriel Bowser to Lori Lightfoot in Chicago uh, to the mayor of San Francisco. We're all doing our part and we're leading with intelligence and compassion. You've got people at the federal level, Ayanna Presley, for example trying to lead and trying to reach across the aisle to find some common ground and consensus in, in just a different way. And I, and I think long-term that serves our country well, it serves our states well, it serves our local municipalities well, because women are coming in looking from a different, unique, nurturing yet Nurturing yet, you know, a natural ability to discern, right? And we're being discerning with our decisions and resolute in our decisions based on, you know, the information we receive. So I, I just think it'd be less sort of infighting, I'm hopeful, and and more, hey, let's let's try to work this out together. You know, it's interesting. I don't typically like to give people who behave badly any notoriety. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I typically don't talk about 
elected officials who behave badly. But I want to talk about one incident, primarily because this particular elected official who behaved badly is from Florida, and he attacked a woman. Congressman Mm -hmm. Yoho from Florida Mm -hmm. verbally assaulted Congressman Ocasio-Cortez on the Capitol steps Mm -hmm. in front of others, a position he took of a third grade schoolyard bully instead of Mm -hmm. a man who was elected as a member of the United States Congress. Do you think he would have said that to a male colleague? First, for one, no, he would not have said that to a male colleague. So that's what bothers me most, right? He felt like it was okay to use profanity against a woman, a young woman, a sharp woman who's outspoken and thoughtful in her comments. I, I, I firmly believe that those comments were not, would not have been made if, if, if she were a man. Moreover, um, the dignity and the respect of that office, he should know better. Right. Right. There are certain protocols in order and there's a certain level of respect and decorum that one must have uh, when you're in that position. And for heaven's sakes, he has daughters. Right. And and, and as she said, I mean, sometimes you have daughters, you're still not a good person, but he should know better. And, 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 And I would also say that that tone, his tone, his profanity, his his lack of respect for Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez you know, that trickles down, you know, trickles down from the top, from the sure. leadership sure. that we do not have right now, sure. the lack of leadership and the tone that has been set. So it makes it almost okay for him to say something as horrific as he said. And and then when he was called on it, you know, right. the, I'm going to put this in air quotes, apology, no thank you. Right. Because you shouldn't have done it in the first place and you know better. And, you know, coming after this, this, this young woman, this woman, your colleague, right? It's, it's unacceptable, period. It seems like, Mayor, it seems like at any other time in history, mm-hmm. that would have, he would have been immediately sanctioned and calls yeah. for his resignation would have happened yeah. almost immediately. Why yes. do you think that we're in a place in our political dialogue where, we aren't calling for action. Right. And what do we need to do to move our country forward where we can hold not just our elected officials accountable again, but ourselves Mm -hmm. accountable again? Right, right. Well, you know, Bob, sadly, and I've been saying this for years, the tone has been set. The tone has been set using profanity and saying things that are less than courteous. Uh, or respectful of your fellow human beings. That's the tone that's been set at the top. So sadly, I think once that tone... The top being the White House. Yes, the White House. <laughs> yeah, the White House. The president has set that tone. And sadly, uh, I think that trickles down into the mood of the country. I think it's trickled down into our politics. Our politics are much more personal and nasty than they have been and need to be. Until that tone is redirected and reset, here we are. We've got people thinking it is okay. What saddens me about that is that those who are in concert with the president, where they had not been in concert with him before, are helping to set the tone as well. I think the folks that are following his lead should be ashamed of themselves. Those, those leaders up there in D.C. should be 
admonishing that sort of behavior. And it's just, I, we're not seeing it. Do you think if they admonish that sort of behavior that that we could get back to a place of tolerable communication? I mean, I think if they admo- admonished it, I think we could get them where we are because it wouldn't be such a, it wouldn't have been normalized in the first place. I'm going to wrap up with this. Your fellow mayors around the country now are dealing with what I consider to be a legitimate Black Lives Matter protest. We've had too many people of color in this country killed without accountability, murdered Mm -hmm. by police Mm -hmm. without accountability. The mayor of Portland, the mayor of Seattle, Mm -hmm. the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Atlanta, mayor of Detroit. These are all mayors, your colleagues that are now directly having their cities what I would consider to be attacked by the leadership of this country. Right. As a mayor, (laughs) can you speak to that a little bit? And can you speak to the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement and what you would hope that we as a country could gain from that? Yeah. So unfortunately, I think that these mayors who are having to deal with the, with the federal government um, coming into their cities and, and quote unquote, um, using these federal powers. I, it's fortunate. It is unconscionable that it has been politicized in this fashion. So I, I think I think it's unfortunate that it, that sitting in federal law enforcement, that sort of uh, effort into these municipalities and these cities is unheard of. And I think it's been politicized. I think again, the president has set his sights on a few cities out of pure vengeance and out of pure self-interest sending these folks into these cities. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. He's overreaching in his powers. He's overreaching in in what he's quote unquote attempting to do. I think the Black Lives Matter movement, it's a moment and a movement, I think is necessary. I'm very, very proud of these young people for taking up this mantle. I'm very, very proud that the movement is a vast, vast cohort of our community. It has all races represented, all genders represented, and that's what gives me hope. I think it's an important movement that is being highlighted. We're talking about injustices and things that have been going on for 400 years that have to be acknowledged. And it's not just around police brutality and police not having empathy in our communities, meaning I'm African-American in the African-American communities. It's about having access to education. It's about having access to housing. It's about food inequity. It's about healthcare. It's about health inequities. It's about all these things that have been sitting out here, sitting in this country, unaddressed, addressed, but not really digging into the minutia of it and how we can make a difference. Uh, And I'm sad that it offends people because it's not meant to offend. It's meant to change. It's meant to uplift. It's meant to educate. So when I see these things happening in these cities and these wonderful folks who are out here getting the message out there and, and protesting and using their First Amendment right to do so and that being challenged, because I, I believe that sending in these you know, additional forces complicate and exacerbate the issue because now people are distrustful. Now people are angry. It's just, it just is, is not good leadership. 
Well, I, I have a feeling, I would dare to say that many of your colleagues at the mayoral level around the country would agree with you. I am inspired by you finding hope in the movement. That is yeah. something very positive, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow that from you so Please I do. too can find some hope. I'm going to close up. We've had a wonderful conversation with you, but before I do, I do have to ask, what is next for Mayor Wagger beyond oh. <laughs> beyond Miami Shores? Can we see you uh, on the ballot for governor? Can we see you on the ballot for U.S. Congress? Listen, I, you know I can't predict the future, Bob. I have no idea. Right now, I'm I'm focused on on my community and and making sure we get through these these challenging times. Right now, this, that's where my focus lies, and being the most effective leader I can be for Miami Shores Village. Who knows, you know, who knows what's out there and what's available uh, and what I might be interested in, I don't know. I don't know, a day to day, Bob. <laughs> I haven't made any grand plans as of today, my dad. Well, on behalf, of, <laughs> on behalf of the listeners today, allow us to extend our good wishes to you. Uh, you. Lots of luck and lots of hope and lots of success in dealing with this extraordinarily stressful situation that you are having to deal with. And thank you again for joining us here today on Breaking Protocol. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And I, I think we will get to the other side, Bob. So do hang on to your hope. This country is built on greatness and, and, and eventually that's going to carry us to the other side. I do believe that. Thank you so much, Mayor. And for those of you uh, who enjoyed today's show, please click and subscribe. If you've not had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available on Amazon or your favorite online retailer and can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Many blessings and have a beautiful day.